The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, August 29th, a soupçon of hope edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. Thirst Aid Kit, a brilliant podcast now coming to the Slate Podcast Network. We're slowly but surely dominating all of Nicole's time and work. (laughs) Um, I love it. I don't mind. (laughs) I'm so happy that you guys are coming to Slate and that we're going to have even more of your work here. Thank you. I'm excited, too. We we really liked the way Slate presented itself to us, and we just feel very comfortable with the dynamic here. We're looking forward to, you know, creating some magic here. I also heard you have a new book deal. Ooh. Yeah. What's that about? <laughs> I got a book deal for my memoir, which is going to be called Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. I love Which that. is a line from my favorite Prince song in the world, If I Was Your Girlfriend, from the Sign of the Times album. And it is going to look at... Um, black womanhood, sexuality, my experience on early online communities and pop culture and how all that kind of blended together, blended together to create um, me. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so excited to read that. Congratulations. Thank you. So June is out this week. We're sad, but we'll live. Uh, but we do have a lot of really, really good topics on deck. First, we're going to talk about Elizabeth Warren and the Democrats who worry she's just not electable. Then we'll review Why Women Kill, a new CBS show about three female murderers, each living in a different decade in the same house. And our third topic this week is sex scenes. They're getting fewer and further between. They're being choreographed by intimacy coordinators. Should we be sad? Should we be horny? Should we be thanking the Me Too movement? We'll discuss. Nicole, you brought us our Slate Plus segment this week, so why don't you give our listeners a little preview? Sure. We're going to ask, is it sexist that Maggie Haberman had to return her advance after backing out of a book deal that was originally with her writing partner, Glenn Thrush, who basically was fired from that book deal because of some sexual harassment accusations? Um, And he did not have to return his advance, but she did. So is it sexist that Maggie Haberman had to return her advance, and Glenn Thrush did not. Here's a little sneak peek at that discussion. All of this is to say that with book advances, especially for high-profile journalists like Maggie Haberman, like Glenn Thrush, I would hope that their agents would really be on this to try to make the best of it. And I'm curious if she felt obligated to return the advance because she felt like she couldn't make up for this disastrous situation that her writing partner had created. And there is a gender dynamic, I think, about sometimes women feeling that they have to be a good citizen, which is like the worst expression. I hate when I'm described as one and then I deeply desire to be one. But it's only if you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know whether this book deal situation is sexist, you can start your free two week trial by visiting slate.com slash the waves plus. All right. Elizabeth Warren, we've talked about her on the podcast before. Uh, She's one of the top three Democratic candidates for president right now, according to almost every recent poll. She's been making progress in Iowa, in New Hampshire. And yet, 
we keep hearing from voters that she's just not electable. Marsha, Penny for your thoughts. Oh, boy. So Elizabeth Warren, over the past few months, has been the topic of a kind of speculative political writing that talks to potential voters who are leaning toward Warren, but say things like, I think she's great. She's so smart. She has great ideas. But is she electable? And can she beat Trump? And I think that this type of writing in many ways can kind of wag the dog Mm -hmm. because it creates a feeling in the political discourse. And then I think it actually starts to affect voters when they wonder what is the point of voting for someone in the primary versus voting for someone in the general election. And so I think a lot of voters think, I vote for whoever I like in the primary, and then we see what happens in the general election. But because of the anxiety, trauma, and fear as a result of this past presidential election, this question of can this person beat Trump has started to stand in for more substantive questions about actual candidates. And so Elizabeth Warren is caught in this strange vortex where people recognize her competence and then they wonder if she can hold up to Donald Trump's racist slurs about her background or does she have the ability to convince people who are moderates that she's a good candidate. And so I think that this is some of the typical political playbook about electability, but it's super magnified because we're in the middle of a terrible presidency. And so it's interesting to hear the way that these person on the street interviews are framed. So it's like, you know, Joe Smith just adores (laughs) Elizabeth Warren, but he says it's only Joe Biden and his ridiculousness that could match up to Trump. And so this is a really, I think, difficult conversation to have because there's so many layers. There's the feeling that something went wrong in 2016 with Hillary Clinton's loss. And at the same time, there's a recognition that she actually got more votes. Mm -hmm. And then there's rarely a recognition of all the voter suppression and voter fraud that led to this presidency. And then at the same time, there's these lingering questions about gender. And even if all the women candidates are the best candidates. Can a woman win the presidency? And so I think everyone is using 2016 as this strange barometer to talk about the politics of 2020, but they're not quite sure how to articulate both an appreciation for Elizabeth Warren's talents and a deep fear that talent doesn't matter in the political race. Yeah, and sometimes I think that those good things about her are then flipped around and used against her. Like, is she too competent to beat Trump? She's just Do so Americans smart. Do Americans want a smart president? <laughs> I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. And every time we talk about, like, is America ready to elect a woman president? I believe that I'm transported back to the 1920s or something where I'm like, Look at every other country around the world. Like there have been women leaders in other countries for decades, and we still haven't been able to elect one as the head of our government. It's it it strikes me as a stupid question until I remember how not stupid it is and and how women in politics, you know, still do face sexism and whatever. But like the 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 way that people are talking about the sexism of other imaginary voters oftentimes ends up revealing possibly their own sexism. Yeah, it's it's kind of like concern trolling, you know, yeah, just this totally. <laughs> you know, just this really I'm just so concerned about what everyone else is going to think that maybe I should just respond to that 
you know, hypothetical situation. Let's just go with what the facts that we have and, you know, um, not necessarily worry about the demons under the bed. The whole thing is very sexist that we have to be so aware of the possibility of she's being too nice and that therefore no one wants anybody nice, that nice or whatever the excuses are. You have to be as miserable a person as Trump in order to beat him. And I don't think that that's fair or accurate. And I also think it just kind of, you know, it's a little insulting to the public to think that, yeah, there was clearly a huge mistake that happened in 2016, but that doesn't mean that people haven't learned from that mistake. And I think we should give people more benefit of the doubt. I think that these articles use the same type of problematic logic of the major political parties and that all the voters are white. Mm -hmm. All of them hate women and none of us are brave. Right. Because Mm -hmm. I think that when you talk about 2016, the analysis is so poor that we don't have a playbook to use based on 2016 because there isn't any coherent thinking about 2016. So if you ask one group of people, 2016 was a result of economic anxiety, not true. Or 2016 happened because black people did not vote for Hillary. It's all their fault. Not necessarily true. 2016, the problem there was Hillary had too many scandals and she couldn't get into votes. Actually, not true. So you have this really for analysis of the last election, you have this deep sense of crisis of what's going to happen next with the country. And you have a slate of Democratic candidates who are in a party that has no articulate vision for the future, that the candidates are going rogue when they have good ideas, when they're thoughtful, when they can understand the complexity of what happened in 2016. And I think Elizabeth Warren really embodies that because she's just smarter than her party in many ways and smarter than the set of conditions that were laid out as people entered this race. And so as a result, the framing then, then the journalism around it is, do you think a woman can win or do you think she's too far to the left. And and so it's it's upsetting because it becomes so influential that we never get a clear sense of who people want to vote for. We have all of this asterisk thinking. And I understand it 100%, right? And I and I know that I am one of these people that has a very strong feeling about this round in the primary. And at the end of the day, I actually don't care who runs against Trump because I just want him to be over. And at the same time, though, this does this means that my political imagination should be the most open, not the most Mm. closed. And I think that that's what people are grappling with. I'm kind of of two minds when I try to imagine how people will vote. On the one hand, Donald Trump kind of burned the taste buds of my brain such that I can't even envision a rational electorate anymore. And I don't think anything matters. And I think it's all just like a roll of the dice. Um, On the other hand, I get so angry when I see Democrats kind of bending over backwards to appease what seems like the worst impulses in the American electorate. Like, I've never seen the Republican Party hand ring about, is this person electable? Was Donald Trump electable? (laughs) Like, you know who doesn't care about electability? Anyone in charge of the Republican Party. The thing they worry about is, is this person radically conservative enough? I think the Tea Party really scared the crap out of them. I think, especially when people talk about Joe Biden, like, 
look at what he's laying out as his vision for the country. I, I couldn't describe it other than like, let's go back to the way things were before Trump, which is not how history works. Marsha, I'm sure you could attest to that. Um, True. <laughs> and then you have people like Elizabeth Warren and most of the other candidates up there besides the sort of like mediocre white men at the very bottom of the barrel who are actually having the audacity to think of a vision for the country and presenting a positive case for people to elect them versus just, I want Trump to be over, where even Joe Biden's wife is out here saying, you know, sometimes you just have to <laughs> settle for, for someone like my husband. Your candidate might be better on health care. My husband is an old white man. He's, he's the most similar to Trump that, <laughs> that, that's on our slate. So, you know, he's probably the one who can beat them. Yeah, that Joe Biden thing was incredible and the fact that it barely made a blip in you know conversations uh, <laughs> I just I'm just constantly amazed at the political discourse and you know what's happening in our worlds right now <laughs> but I'm not necessarily overly optimistic about getting rid of Trump and what Elizabeth Warren's chances are but I'm I feel kind of numb but I'm also there's still like you know, a soupçon of hope Ooh. left. Ooh, a soupçon. What <laughs> <laughs> is that, like a tablespoon? Or like, how would yeah. you quantify that? Yes, yeah, a very small amount. Just a little <laughs> drizzle <laughs> of hope left. I don't know what Elizabeth Warren has to do or any of, of the women would have to do to be viable candidates in in our current climate of politics and quote unquote social justice in this world. I don't I don't know. Here's the thing. You win elections by growing the electorate and not being so obsessed with flipping it. Hmm. And this is why you can have a black president elected in 2008, right? You grow the voter rolls. The problem with that is that the fact that Barack Obama was able to grow the voter rolls, the fact that Stacey Abrams was able to do that, and the response then is voter suppression and dirty tricks is the part where the strategy has to be really, really sound. And I think that the other element of it that I think goes into this electability question is performance. So much of the last campaign cycle was just bizarre performance art, if you will, Mm -hmm. with 900 Republicans all vying for it and Trump emerging because his performance was so ridiculous that there was no way that the media could not report on it. And they had also no conscience. And so they would just air everything. Right. And so I think when people talk about electability, the question is, who is clever enough, fast enough and not thin skinned that they can go up against the ridiculous performance of Trump? And honestly, I've said this many times. I think Warren has a little bit of that trolley sensibility in her to actually do the performance part. I think what happens is that for a number of voters, performance and electability become merged into one. Mm. And so someone who is not interested in Warren, if she makes it to the debate stage with Trump and she gets a few digs and some, you know, sick burns against him, they're like, oh, look at that. She can. I mean, this is folks, this is why civics education is so important, (laughs) because if it comes down to, you know, how many sick burns a person can slay in a debate. I actually think Warren has that ability. If we remember her early tweets of delete your account, Mm -hmm. she has a little bit of that. But that's the problem. That shouldn't be the reason why you vote for president. But I think that that actually works. I think that 
we talk about the primaries. There is a number of people who are talking about all these candidates. And at the end of the day, it'll be October 31st, 2020. And someone's like, oh, I guess I should pick someone to vote. Who has the sickest burns out there? And (laughs) that person becomes the president of the United States. And so I understand that desire to fixate on electability, but I think that when we're really honest, electability is how many jokes a person can like complete or how many insults they can withstand up against Trump. And voila, that's the president. Oh, it's so depressing. I also think there's a sense, a very false sense, that in order for a candidate to beat Trump, she has to convince people who love Trump to flip. That's not how it works. Yeah, and that's actually not how it works. Like, also, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Like, people are ready to vote for a female candidate. Um, I Has Joe Biden ever proved that he's electable as president? He's not good at running for president. Wow. I have said this on this podcast, damn it, and I will say it again. He has been running for president since I was a wee child. It's He's never able to deliver the goods. Why? And yet, he's and yet, so electable. And he's, I know. And he's got the, like, I think he's winning in the polls. Yeah. Oh, so one thing man. I will say that gives me a soupçon of hope is <laughs> I talked to Chris Yonke, who is a uh, political consultant and speech coach for female candidates. Uh, I interviewed her for Slate's Daily Podcast, What Next, a couple weeks ago. She said that because there are several women running right now, and granted, not all of them are, you know, even close to being in the running for the nomination, um, but because they each have their own style and shtick and history, none of them have to bear the burden of being the woman candidate, which Hillary Clinton had to bear the last time around. And I have to say, for me, it does feel different now. It feels it, it feels less wild that women are running. It feels like a little bit less momentous, which I don't think is a bad thing. Like, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen one of those women on stage. It doesn't feel like our our ears are perking up every time she says something to be like, was that a gendered thing? Like, is that how women think about things? Like, there are a variety of policy proposals put forth on, like, quote unquote, women's issues uh, on the stage. And, and, you know, we see, like, women disagreeing with each other and women with different ways of interrupting men or responding to men. Um, Even wearing different outfits. Yeah, totally. I think it makes mm-hmm. a difference. Mm-hmm. Their styles are a little bit different. I'm partial to the flats and the sensible jacket look, but they don't all look the same. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that's all the time we have on oh. sexism and Elizabeth Warren. Listeners, what do you think? Is she electable? <laughs> what makes a presidential candidate electable? And and what about Joe Biden? Has he proven that he can win the presidency? Can't wait to read your emails. You can reach us at thewaves@slate.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, Why Women Kill. It's a new dramedy only available for streaming on CBS All Access, which if you watch The Good Fight, you probably already have. So this show is three parallel storylines that never intersect. It's about three women married to men living in three different time periods in the same house. There's Jennifer Goodwin, who plays a doting and repressed 1960s housewife 
who befriends the waitress that her husband is cheating on her with. There's Lucy Liu, who plays a fabulously dressed 1980s socialite. She discovers her husband is gay. They decide to keep up the sham to maintain their social life. And then there's Kirby Howell Baptiste, who I have loved in The Good Place and Killing Eve. She plays a powerful lawyer who's bisexual. Her girlfriend on the side comes to live with her and her husband. So each episode is like a little bit from each of these storylines. In every story, there's a marital problem involving infidelities or other partners. And we know that somebody is going to get murdered in each storyline. But we don't know who. We don't know which women will do the killing. But we know since the title of the show is Why Women Kill, it will be women doing the killing. Um, So there's a little bit of built-in suspense. You know how the story ends um, to a certain extent, but you don't know how it gets there. So, you know, there's a lot of foreshadowing, a lot of what I suspect will be red herrings. The show reminds me a lot of Desperate Housewives, and I didn't realize that it's it was created by the same guy until after I was already like, oh my god, this is so Desperate Housewives. Like, it's very shamelessly melodramatic in the score and in the plot, and the plot points, even the very serious or disturbing ones, are treated with a wink, no real sort of emotional heft. All the characters are kind of caricatures. One of the women even has sex with a high school boy, which also happened on Desperate Housewives. <laughs> so apparently that's a Mark Cherry classic plot point. I have a lot of things I didn't like about the show. The first is that it was really boring for me to watch these three plot lines switch off without ever affecting one another. So they all end up being kind of shallow and one-dimensional. Like, I find it hard to even remember any of the characters' names after watching the three episodes we got because in 40 minutes or whatever, you don't have time to get really deep into any of the actual characters when you're trying to establish three totally different stories in three totally different time periods. What did you guys think? <sighs> um, <laughs> I am the not Nicole Sai TM. <laughs> I'm not familiar with Mark Cherry's work. I didn't watch Desperate Housewives because this kind of... Um, I mean, I love Golden Girls, which was also um, something that he created. I'm sorry. Yeah, a writer. In my estimation, the peak of his career. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that show's incredible. Yeah. But I found I was I was not really interested in the women's stories. I, you know, I know that these are caricatures and they're kind of supposed to be campy and things like that but I was like I don't really necessarily want to know about the women I want to know about the house because it kind of reminds (laughs) me of the book I recommended on the show a few episodes ago the house next door because the house next door was this house that had this evil thing and drove its occupants mad and and they ended up killing people you know all the residents ended up killing people so I would wonder if that's where we're going with this because supposedly maybe the women do not kill kind of led up to this idea that the women end up killing their husbands but maybe it is the house and that's going to be the big humongous twist I I don't know but the house kills the people yeah, like because I mean that's the All one right, thing. I'll put that... you down for that prediction. We'll see how that turns out. <laughs> I mean that's the only thing that's consistent in the three different stories, right? Because yeah. we've got the story in the '60s, a story from the '80s, and the story from now. And everything, the only thing that's the same is the house. The interior, obviously, is 
redesigned or whatever, but it's the house beautiful. is beautiful. The, the production design on this is definitely my favorite gorge. part. I love I love the transitions from the scenes, you know, from the time periods to time periods. I love that. I love I do love the way that, you know it seems to be shot. I like the opening credits, the cartoonish credits where we see you know these women killing their husbands in such strange and violent ways. But I don't know that I like the show. I feel bad because every time we talk about a TV show on on the waves, I don't particularly care for it. So I love television more than anything. I mean, I just I love TV. I was with some friends this weekend and all I did was talk about my favorite shows from the 80s and the 90s. I love television. So I'm usually open to most TV. I think that the problem with why women kill is that it's it's so evocative of desperate housewives that it seems like Bark Cherry's evolution as a as a writer doesn't bear fruit here. Mm. And I think what they do it's like a mashup of all your favorites. It's Mad Men. It's American <laughs> Horror Story. Mm-hmm. It's the L Word. It's like all of these shows. And so I don't think it has its own rootedness because it's making you think about other shows mm. while you watch it. So that can be a little distracting. But only, I guess, if you watch the volumes of television I watch. But I think part of it is this idea of the complexity of women's emotions when they're wronged and their inability to kind of access their anger. It's a slow burn. Hmm. And so, you know, this woman finds out that her husband's cheating. And so she doesn't, because of social structures, have access to her own money or her own identity. So she has to, like, slowly smoke him out in whatever plot that's going to unfold. I think that part of the challenge of a show like this is are they trying to show change over time or a kind of continuity about the ways that women have to bear the brunt of deception and a deep desire to keep up appearances when they're in marriages? And so even with the modern one where they're an interracial couple where the the woman makes more money, and I guess they're in an open marriage in which they can date other people but Mm -hmm. the plot twist is they're going to try a threesome (laughs) like some of it just seems a little juvenile and I think because of the quality of television that has been out here that has explored some of these issues some of it just seems a little silly Mm -hmm. but they don't fully commit to camp yeah because if they did full camp it could be kind of fun like RuPaul could be a character the next door neighbor or something Desperate Housewives did better with that where the campiness was a lot more forefronted and so you don't know if they're trying to make a statement about gender yeah. or just set design. The set design is... <laughs> it, it feels to me like it wants credit for taking on how women are taking charge and claiming power and, you know, examining the inner lives of women. But it's a profoundly conservative depiction of women, as far as I'm concerned, where women are, you know status obsessed or desperate to please or just jealous, neglected, like used for sex. And it's it's wild to me. And again, this is speaks to its conservative worldview, which is typical in CBS. Actually, CBS's audience is a lot older and whiter than that of its peers, mm-hmm. where you, you see two interracial couples and neither of them, the show doesn't mention race at yeah. all, even when it's yeah. talking about infidelity and intimacy and the sort of sexual politics of being in, in these marriages. You never hear any of them mention race and or, or even in, insinuate or, or have that play and any no one sort of reacts role. to them as couples either. Right. Right. And yeah. So the description on the show's webpage says, 
The series will examine how the roles of women have changed, but how their reaction to betrayal has not. <laughs> I actually don't think that's true of women. And so, like, if the premise of the show is that over time, women have not changed how they react to betrayal. What? Like, I, I take offense to that interpretation <laughs> of how, quote unquote, women have changed over time. Yeah. So, you know, looking through different reviews about the shows and the interviews with Mark Cherry, one of the things that he says is that because he is a gay man, he's not interested in highlighting the physical aspects of the women that he's he's talking about or the women that he writes um, for. He wants to focus on the interiority of women. And I think that that is lacking in this show like there's yeah. a, a everyone just happens in... to be really hot yeah, <laughs> yeah. by coincidence also inter- i didn't realize mark cherry was gay but very interesting that two of the marriages seem to be having trouble because one of the people in the marriage is queer like that's <laughs> kind of a strange yes. that's like oh that's the nexus of your marital conflict and and probably why one of you gets killed cool <laughs> Yeah, like there's a moment where Lucy Liu's character in the first episode, when she found out that her husband is gay and she's, you know, trying to process that. And then the 17 year old boy, the son of one of her friends, is kind of offering comfort or whatever. So she's going through this litany of the reasons why her marriages have failed. The first husband was addicted to alcohol. The second husband addicted to cocaine and now her third husband is addicted to men or whatever <laughs> um, and you know then then the little boy toy is just like offering himself to her right and I'm like okay we could have sat with this because Lucy Lou's character is clearly going through something like yeah. that's um, traumatic to have these marriages that have ended and what that could do to her ego to her self-esteem and all this kind of stuff but here's this young stud so let's just move on to him you know I was just kind of like uh can we just sit with this for a little bit and let her like process it a little more before we get into this idea of you know the 17 year old who's about to turn 18 in two weeks as he points out but it's just real skeevy like I, I would if we if we're trying to highlight um women's interiority didn't actually sit and let's go inside of her mind. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is interesting about television, if we look at Mark Cherry's arc, um, the Golden Girls was really a transgressive show in the 80s. Um, You know, they had storylines about sexuality. They had storylines about menopause. They had storylines about AIDS and safe for sex practices for, you know, senior citizens. This show was really groundbreaking. And I think one of the things, and your point about CBS, Christina, um, resonates because there is a way in which television becomes strangely conservative, even when it's suggesting that it's provocative. And so some of the storylines and sitcoms were so present of the day. And looking back, you're thinking, Could people do that on TV in the 80s? And now that I think we can do more on television, especially with the expansion of cable, people seem to be doing less with that creative license. And so that's why, you know, a show might, when I was a kid, shows I felt like talked very honestly about HIV and AIDS because they felt like this was a crisis point where a television show could address some of these misunderstandings. And now storylines with people are HIV positive or storylines in which people had AIDS are very rare, I think, on television. And so you start to see the shift. So in a strange way, it's like Mark Cherry went from a show that talked about the sex lives of women over 60 to a show like this, where all the women 
even though they aren't necessarily young, they have these very kind of conventional relationships and some of it is played for laughs. It's it's this interesting thing that happens on TV, but one of the premises of the show that I always struggle with as someone who actually really likes true crime is this idea of women killing as funny. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't, I, I really struggle with that because I do appreciate camp and I understand that there's a kind of genre that plays with crime. But the more and more I watch things like this, I'm like, this is like domestic violence. <laughs> and like, this is yeah. really bad to kind of relish in it. But I think it's about this idea if women have such limited outlets for authentic emotion and expression then murder becomes this is the i guess the through line yeah, murder becomes reaction to betrayal has always been murder i just feel like right. you just throw someone's stuff out your house <laughs> before it gets to that point yeah yeah i wanted to go back to um christina your point about race so in the modern story with taylor the black bisexual lawyer who is making way more money than her husband Eli. A feminist lawyer who makes millions of dollars and lives in a mansion. Right. (laughs) Um, And Eli is her screenwriting husband who seems so uh, I don't know is he He feels emasculated. Yeah. Yeah, And then the fact that you know he's he's got a a good guy friend who is also black who is kind of aggressive and pushing him towards oh my gosh you gotta get that three way you know and and (laughs) You know, I'm just like, okay. And I know that this couple is supposed to be like the super woke. This is where we're at now. But like, what does it mean that you have this white man who is, you know, kind of positioned as this kind of soft doormat of a person being, I don't want to say pushed around, but, you know, acquiescing to the black people in his life. The very aggressive Um, black people in his life. When we first meet them, he says something about his wife where she just told you know this this poor house contractor like my dick is bigger than yours and the husband yes. comes over and goes yep it's also bigger than mine like <sighs> could you have hit me on the head just a little bit softer with that like yes we get it she makes more money than you you feel emasculated so you're gonna end up trying to sleep with somebody oh. else like i've already written the entire story in my head yeah, and then like the partner, the the woman that comes into their marriage and shakes everything up, Jade is this very thin, you know, mm. very thin white girl, almost manny, manic, yeah. manic pixie, pixie dream, girl. dream girl. Who came from a which, foster home, so she's so damaged. Right, like, you know, she's whole... got her little boho attire, you know, she's very bohemian, she undresses in front of him and just happens to bend over right in front of his <laughs> face, you know, like all of this kind of, and I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? I don't understand, like what, are we supposed to be having a feminist um dialogue with this show because none of this shit is very feminist to me I don't know what's going on yeah I'm really excited to see how Mark Cherry continues to talk about this show I I want to know if you guys will continue to watch it because part of me really does want to know whether there's some subversive plot twists that come in mid-season or at the end but then the other part of me gets so bored watching it because I feel like an algorithm has written the show out of just stereotypes and caricatures and I already know everything that's going to happen you know, I don't like the show, but I will keep watching for a few more episodes because I, too, am intrigued. Like, But I think it's a, um, a miniseries, right? I don't think it's um, it's necessarily going to get a second season. I don't. Maybe I misunderstood the premise of the show because I feel like it, I, I no saw idea. that it was a limited series. So I guess if it gets 
you know, enough viewers. Perhaps there'll be a second season. Maybe it'll become some sort of anthology like <laughs> American Horror Story. I don't know, but I, I will watch a couple of more episodes just to see. Um, but I... I, too, I am a little bored. It's hard to remember people's names. It is just, I don't know, I'm. it's not my favorite new show. <laughs> Marshall, will you watch it? If my insomnia continues, <laughs> it might get a go. I mean, I, I think, again, set design, beautiful. Costuming, the best. Hair and makeup, amazing. Plot, <laughs> questionable. Uh, yeah, I think, I wish you could watch TV shows at, like, double speed. Like, you can listen to podcasts. <laughs> because I do want to know what happens. I might have it on in the background while I'm washing dishes or something, but I'm not going to carve out too much time in my life for this show. Listeners, if you've watched it, especially if you've liked it, I would love to hear from you. Our email address is thewaves@slate.com. All right. Our last topic for the week, sex scenes in the Me Too era. Apparently, we're seeing fewer of them, and the ones we do see are being meticulously choreographed. Nicole, give us the scoop. So there's this company called Intimacy Directors International, and they are Alyssa Rodish, who is a former actor and stunt woman, Tanya Cena, who is a former fight choreographer, and Siobhan Richardson, who is also a former actor and fight director. And they decided to form uh, Intimacy Directors International because there's this idea that, you know, so much care goes into fight scenes and other violent graphic scenes. But when it comes to sex and intimacy, people are just like, oh, you know how to kiss. You know how to... (laughs) you know, hump vigorously. That's okay. You don't need <laughs> you don't need any direction there. But as we have seen since the rise of Me Too, there are a lot of actors who violate each other's boundaries when it comes to sex scenes, like removing the privacy guards that are often placed over uh, genitalia for full nude scenes. There are people who you know, take advantage of the fact that there's a young, uh, young star who can't say no to certain advances or whatever. So the part of what's going on is that these intimacy coordinators help people, you know, do stuff like establish the number of pumps in a scene. Like, are you comfortable with three pumps? Okay, what about two? Should we, you know, what the deep thrust? You know, those kinds of things. It sounds funny and ridiculous, but like when you're in the moment, when you're actually actually a part of those scenes, that can be uh, very important for you. With these intimacy coordinators, you learn how to touch with consent and get comfortable with your scene partners and things like that. And, you know, The Deuce, the show on HBO, which is about porn industry that stars Maggie Gyllenhaal, James Franco was on The Deuce and had some accusations that he was removing the privacy guards during intimate scenes and no longer simulating oral sex on his scene partners. And as a result of that, which he denied, he and his team denied that he did anything like that. The Deuce brought in these intimacy coordinators to kind of, you know, avoid any liability, basically, for anything that could be construed as sexual misconduct. And Some people are arguing that sex scenes in movies have faded away. There aren't as many intimacy scenes in movies and in television and that television and film has become less sexy. I agree that television scenes have become less sexy. Famously, Game of Thrones had women naked in the background for no reason sometimes, just like just to show the callousness of the men. But I I 
don't know that I would say there are less sex scenes. I think that they are less intimate and less romantic and less they don't show sex anymore as something that can be beautiful and the connection between two people or three people or four people or whatever the situation may be. So I I understand that um, we need to be more careful and be more cognizant of how those sex scenes can go astray. But I think with those intimacy coordinators, I think that they can help bring back a level of trust with, you know, coworkers or colleagues. And also I'm hoping that they will bring back good sex scenes the romantic sex scenes as a person who talks about desire and sexuality a lot in my own work. I think it's important to have, you know, positive displays of sexuality on screen. So I'm hoping that these intimacy coordinators bring that back. I knew a little bit about this type of role, but in reading up to have this conversation, I think that one way I appreciate this is that this is a labor issue and this is about a workplace issue. And I think that the more Hollywood productions can remind everyone that they're at work, they are not on a dating site, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're not on Tinder come alive, that they are at their jobs and have people supporting that environment, it helps address some of the ways that the culture normalizes abuse and discrimination and sexual harassment. And so I think that it's kind of sad it's come so late that this role has been popularized because if you can imagine, like you said, Nicole, asking someone like you've had sex before, just do that again, but not for real in front of all of these people. Go. It's so weird. And just like we would never have someone at an auto plant start building a car if they did not know how to build a car. This idea that creative professions aren't professions, they aren't work because they come from your heart and your soul or you're so inspired. I think this is where we get into some really dangerous territory. I don't know. I think that now with so much on cable and so many offerings on streaming, the lines about what kind of sex you see, I think, are really blurred in terms of network television. And so it seems like these intimacy coordinators are used a lot for some of the prestige TV and some of the film work. But I think that this should probably be a role that's mandated through the actors unions Mm -hmm. that every production has to have someone in this role if there's any type of sexual material just to cover everyone. I think that the liability insurance companies that are supposed to protect both actors and the production, they should probably mandate this because it seems ridiculous to think that you can have an environment in which you're asking people to do something that is so personal and intimate and have a culture around abuse that people leverage to try to either make or break people's careers, that you can just have that and then wait for something bad to happen to bring in this type of person. Yeah. Nicole, when you talked about bringing the trust back into the industry when it comes to actors and actresses, I also thought about bringing trust back among viewers, too. Like, Mm -hmm. especially knowing now that, for instance, Harvey Weinstein forced Selma Hayek to do more and different kind of sex scenes than she was comfortable with in the movie about Frida Kahlo. At least that's what she's alleged. And knowing now that blue is the warmest color, which had an incredibly long and voyeuristic and and sort of male gazy sex scene, come to find out later that the actresses involved accused director Abdelatif Kashish of 
I I don't want to say abuse, but mistreating them, forcing them to go on for longer than they wanted to, doing things they weren't comfortable with. That's affected the way that I watch movies and TV shows where I wonder when I see an explicit sex scene, how were the performers treated here? And I it makes me feel a little dirty watching it and not sexually excited at all or, you know, focused on the story. I'm focused more on what was going on behind the scenes that led the sex scene to happen. And, you know, was everyone fully on board? So I think in order for some viewers who care about these labor issues to trust in productions, intimacy coordinators and other types of sort of boundary and trust building exercises are necessary. It also made me think of the directors who are sort of famous for fetishizing like authenticity and like velite and like you know it's it should all just come from like the human experience and you know why should you need to tell people how to how to like physically express love for somebody do you know how many awkward and not awkward on purpose but just like awkward sex scenes and kissing scenes there are in movies like people actually don't I think know how to kiss and make love in a way that makes sense on camera I think it does need to be choreographed I was actually just watching Veronica Mars the other day on the recommendation of people on this show I started watching it from the beginning all the kissing scenes are so bad I was like (laughs) why didn't anybody tell them like all right go slower with your lips like Mm -hmm. move your head to this side move your head to that side like I think we read some articles in preparation for this segment of people bemoaning the, you know, demise of the sex scene or something like this idea that that uh, production studios and uh, writers aren't going to put sex scenes in things anymore. I think that this is maybe an opportunity to just rethink what a sex scene can be and how uh, it does like something that might feel natural in the moment or actually might feel abusive in the moment does or does not translate into an actually sexually arousing experience for the audience. Yeah, I'm reminded of True Blood, which was another HBO show that ran from 2008 to 2014. And Alexander Skarsgård, who is a Swedish actor, one of the things that came out about some of the behind the scenes stuff is that he refused to wear the uh, intimacy sock (gasps) that they would put on men. But when it came out during the time of the show, it was just kind of brushed aside and people laughed at it like, ha ha ha, you know, Europeans have such a better idea about sex and intimacy and they're so much more comfortable with their bodies. That's kind of how it was played up in the media and, you know, how we learned about it. But I was always very uncomfortable with that because it's like, you don't want somebody's raw junk rubbing up against you in a workspace, you know, and you don't want to see a naked man walking around set um, while everybody else has, you know, all their bits covered. it's just bodies, Nicole. It's just, it's human (laughs) bodies. It's the human experience. Right. But also, like we're saying, we're at work and the scene is the scene. And once we're finished with the scene, let's put on our robes and go about our business preparing for the next scene he should he should have worn a sock everybody everybody needs to keep their stuff covered and it's not about being prudish or anything but again this is work it's not um like marcia said it's not a dating service you're not trying to show off your body to make sure people know that you're very fit or whatever i mean you kind of are though that's the weird thing about this is that you like sexual objectification is sort of part of the 
art of movie making. I know it shouldn't have to be, but like that's kind of what you're doing when you um, make somebody in your show or movie an object of sexual interest, right? Right, but if the cameras are off, there's no reason for oh. you to walk well, around yes, without the. <laughs> you know? Well, I sometimes I watch stuff. Usually on cable, I'm like, what's really happening? Have mm-hmm. Where it either looks so explicit or so real. I'm like, what's actually being covered? Because I guess this is the magic of movie making. Because it <laughs> looks like the people are actually having real sex or there's real nudity. How does, how does everyone move so quickly? And I think that this is the other way in which people have to be reminded that this is actually an art form and this is skill. And just like we can see bad acting, we can see bad um, sex scenes. We can see bad kissing on on screen. But I also wonder if there is a way that this role can also not just work for actors, but help writers rethink why they are writing the scenes that they're writing. Because yeah. sometimes I'm watching a show and I'm like, did we really need this for the advancement of plot? Did we really mm-hmm. need this to understand the complexity of this character? Or did someone say, well, I'm on HBO, I might as well show this. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I think it isn't that the sex scene is disappearing because people are nervous. You know, everything is a Me Too problem. Like, oh, yeah. Me Too has ruined everything. Ice cream <laughs> is bad because of Me Too. Right. But the question is, is this person thoughtfully writing a series of events or is the sex scene a way of saying like, I, I kind of ran out of ideas. So we're going to have someone naked yeah. one moment, please, you know? And so yeah. I think that this is about quality of product as well. In addition to representation that makes actors and people who are working on set comfortable. I think that a, a lot of writers and directors might be thinking, um, as far as Me Too is concerned, less about Me Too, more about just changing ideas of what we want from our movies, that it's easier to not have a sex scene than to try to do a sex scene that actually doesn't feel gratuitous or exploitative. Because in order to make one that doesn't feel that way, you have to have written a female character that has like agency and an inner life and desires and thoughts about what's going on. And so many movies like don't even have that as a baseline. I find shows that aren't supposed to be romantic or sexy maybe feel more free in terms of representation. When I think about an HBO show like High Maintenance that has a lot of sex in it, but it's like sex of regular people Mm -hmm. that isn't being played as this kind of erotic journey into the self, there's something about it that rings very authentic because you don't turn on High Maintenance to see people having sex. But a show like The Affair, which I call middle-aged softcore porn, (laughs) um, I love that show, but it is... Interesting that it it has a form where you're going to see lots of sex. And when episodes don't have it, you're like, wait a second, did the writer take a day off? This is what this form is for. And so I think it's also about setting the expectation of what this show is giving the viewer that can also, I think, impact that kind of the way in which it will wants to engage solely in a world of fantasy or some type of attempt to try to mirror what people's lives are actually like. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I've noticed with the resurgence of rom-coms is how actually chaste rom-coms are uh, mm-hmm. for the most part. And once I find like tuned in on that, I was kind of surprised because like why are we so 
you know, into these romantic comedies if there isn't very much sex or intimacy in them. But I think what's happening is we're getting that slowly with more of like these Netflix original ones. I'm thinking about To All the Boys I've Loved Before, that adaptation that came out. It's about high schoolers and they don't have sex, but there's a very intimate scene of them in a hot tub together, fully, not fully dressed, but, you know, dressed for a hot tub. And it sent like grown women, including myself, like through the roof because it was such a beautiful, intimate, sweet display of physical affection that, again, had no, um, you know, coitus. There was no sex, but it was just, you know, two kids making out. uh, But it was just a very sweet scene. And then we have uh, Netflix's other original um, film, um, Always Be My Maybe, which did have a sex scene with the two leads that was very, you know, that was pretty steamy. You know, he, Randall Park's character picks up Amy Wong's character and has her up against the wall. And like, there's all, you know, very intimate and, you know, a little, I can't say anything else but steamy. I don't know. Like, it was was like, wow. Um, But I was very surprised because I'm not used to seeing that in rom-coms where the people finally have a really good, um, a strong a substantial sex scene together and it's played up as two people who love each other pardon the pun coming together and having this really <laughs> great moment because we don't really get to see intimacy that is thoughtful and about connection too often anymore it's so often we see um abuse or you know sex use as manipulation or something like that um more often lately i would say maybe in the last 10 years in my experience it's been very difficult to to see that kind of stuff so i'm hoping that that's what these intimacy coordinators will help bring back to the scene to the screen um some more i don't know connections between people so people can see that sex is not always about violence and abuse yeah I, I think that's a good place to leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, do you have any favorite sex or sexy scenes that you think were particularly well done, choreographed or not? Email us at thewaves at slate.com. All right, it's time for our recommendations. And because this is her last podcast as producer of The Waves, Tier, she's staying at Slate, just going to do some other wonderful podcasting things on What Next. Danielle Hewitt. What would you like to recommend this week? Okay, so I would like to recommend the music of Jamila Woods. She is an artist from Chicago. She is most notably on tracks with Chance the Rapper. Uh, She sings the chorus on Sunday Candy, but she has two albums. The first one is called Heaven, and the second one is called Legacy. And they're both, she just sings like the most affirming and like wonderful music. Her voice is really great. And like, yeah, I don't know. Her music is very empowering. So I would suggest the music of Jamila Woods. Aww. Maybe we can play a little clip of one of her songs on our outro or something. Yeah, happy to. <laughs> Nicole, what do you have this week? Okay, I would like to recommend a podcast called Flyest Fables, and it is by creator Morgan Givens, who is a trans man, and it's a collection of 21st century fables that start with Antoine, who is a young boy who's being bullied in school. He finds this magical book about a princess, Keisha, who is on a quest to save her mom and the kingdom of Orleans, and you each episode is a story from that book, and uh, it's 
fantastic. It is just an incredible podcast. It is something that I think parents should listen to with their kids because it brings up all kinds of interesting discussions like homelessness, colorism, dealing with finding out that your friends are queer and things like that. So I think it's a really good learning opportunity for parents and children alike. And also as a person who doesn't have any kids, it's just a beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful collection of stories. So Flyest Fables, created by Morgan Givens. Give it a listen. Sounds really good. I've actually heard that podcast recommended from a couple people, so I've got to give it a try. I'm recommending a play this week. It's called Fabulation or the Reeducation of Undine. It is being staged right now at the Atlas Performing Arts Center here in DC. Um, it's a Mosaic Theater Company production. The play is by Lynn Nottage, one of the great playwrights of our time. It was first staged in 2004. It's about a highly successful black woman, a PR professional in her late 30s, who wakes up one day to find that her husband has run away with all her money. Uh, So she's kind of forced to return to the family and the projects and the, the sort of social milieu of her upbringing, which she has tried to completely erase from the story that she tells other people and herself about herself. It's an unbelievably fun... It's an unbelievably funny play, but more importantly, it's some of the best acting that I've seen in D.C. recently. Felicia Curry, who plays Undine, is spectacular, but also all the supporting roles. There's dozens of them, and all of the actors and actresses play several roles each, so they're constantly cycling in between these very vividly drawn characters. Aku Twanera Freeman and Roz White, who play Undine's grandmother and mother, among many other important roles, are probably going to win awards for their work in this. It's so good. It's I would say it's a run-don't-walk situation. Uh, the play runs until September 22nd. Anyone who's in D.C. or plans on coming here in the next month should go see it. If not, you should see the play when it's playing in your community. It's called Fabulation or the Reeducation of Undine at the Atlas Performing Arts Center. Marsha? Wow, these are all so highbrow. So in (laughs) honor of my television addiction, I want to recommend the podcast again with this, Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place. Every week, Sarah Bunting and Tara Ariano, who did a lot of early recapping and community building around TV watching with TV Without Pity, have a podcast about every single episode of 90210. They have now included Melrose Place as well as the 90210 (laughs) reboot. As someone who watched this, probably a little on the young side, geez Louise, I might have been in sixth grade when this came out. It is hilarious because they are best friends. So it's really nice to see their own friendship, but also struggling to watch so much Aaron Spelling programming (laughs) makes them saints in my book. But it's also an interesting look at what television in the 90s was offering. And 90210 was revolutionary in that it was a nighttime soap for teenagers that also had new episodes in the summer and also had a lot of guest stars like um, music legends Color Me Bad. (laughs) So it's just this wonderful (laughs) thing if um, you really want to relive the 1990s, um, Sarah and Tara's conversation about Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place will put a smile on your face. Danielle, it's been real. Thank you so much for being an amazing producer for this show. We'll really miss you. I know our listeners will miss you. 
Thank you also to Cleo Levin, who provided production assistance for this episode. For Nicole Perkins and Marsha Chatlin, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. I'm not long.